Friday afternoon in the universe. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you from the moon cabin and via the moon unit. The Soyuz 017-FET through the hand-wound transformers of the MA5 and into your ears. Folks, this is the second ever uh, Friday show on the Midnight Disease, and I want to thank all of you who listened to slash watched the first one, which came out last week. And as I told you then, uh, and as I tell you all the time, we do have an email address here on the show. It's midnight at walt.fm. And a few of you wrote to me after that Friday show last week, and I was so grateful to hear from you and to hear that uh, what we talked about resonated. And I wanted to share to start today a response uh, that one of you sent in. This is from listener David Peterkovsky. And uh, I'll read you a little bit of it. David writes, Hi, Sam. I just finished listening to your solo Friday show and it rang many bells. My self-produced podcast is not quite as narrative as what you do, but it is an interview show about people's passions, and one in which I carefully layer in written narration, music, and other production elements to flesh it out and ideally keep it from being a stale chat show. I take great care in stewarding these stories so that the people in them are celebrated and not mocked or diminished in any way. I've noticed and lamented, as you have, that when I've shared my past several shows with the people I featured— the crushing waves of silence I've received in response have made me feel exactly the way you described. Did I screw up? Is the end result cheesy? Did they trust me with their story and I flubbed it? Does what I do matter in the slightest? Or are they just busy, shy about the attention, not concerned with things like silly podcasts, you name it? Why do I do this anyway? And just to say, David, uh, that last question uh, hits deep. <laughs> <laughs> that one comes up for me, too, in these moments, just to say you are not alone. Um, David continues, I think one big piece of why I, and apparently you, feel this way is the inequity in time and energy put into the project. Someone may chat with me for an hour, but then I live with their audio literally in my ears for a couple of weeks as I edit their tape, craft a story based on their words concoct social media posts to publicize the episode, and so on. In my case, I think it distorts the level of connection I have with the folks I talk to, and so when there's little to no response once the podcast is posted, after all of my care and work, that difference feels even more profound. David, thank you for writing this email. Um, I realize it's a vulnerable thing to put out there, and so I just want to say I stand with you <laughs> And that, that feeling of what am I even doing this for that comes up in moments like this. And before we go any further, I want to say that the show David is talking about that he makes is anything but a stale chat show. It's a wonderful podcast that everybody listening to slash watching this should check out. It's called For Keeps. And in every episode, David uh, sits down with somebody who has a collection of something, whether it's puzzles or wine or comedy albums. 
and talks to them about why they collect this thing and and what this collection connects them to about themselves and the wider world. And just to give a very specific recommendation, I think it's episode 83, he talks to Lori Pepper, who is the widow of the great but deeply troubled saxophonist Art Pepper, um, about why she collects um, the archives of Art's live performances. Um, It's just a beautiful episode. And David, I hope Lori reached out to you after you posted the episode, but... Whether or not she did, uh, I just want to say that there's one person out here who really got a lot from that episode. So thank you for writing. And the thing that David's email makes me think about is that he makes this very apt point that there's this inequity of time. And when you have somebody on your podcast, you, if you're doing it properly, I think, you have spent so much more time with them than they are going to spend with you. Um, When I have somebody on the midnight disease, I try to listen to every interview they've ever given that I can find. If they have published writing, I try to read as much of that writing as I can. If they have made albums, I try to listen to all of the albums. Um, Whatever material is out in the world, I try to digest as much of it as I can so that when I'm sitting there with them, You know, I'm always talking to somebody because they have made or done something that was really resonant to me. And so I want to make sure that when I have the chance to talk to them about that, I can convey that in a way that makes it clear that I care about what they do and that that's why we're having this conversation. And then, as David pointed out, we have our conversation and then there's the hours of editing and sculpting, crafting, publicizing that come after the interview takes place. So all told, it's conservatively 15 hours that I'm spending with this person as compared to the one and a half hours that they're spending talking to me. And that is a huge imbalance. And again, none of this is on the person who is being interviewed. It's not like it's their job to somehow (laughs) spend that much time also thinking about the person that's going to interview them. But what David's email makes me think about (laughs) is that when I come out of a really great conversation that I have had for the show, one of the reasons it's really great is because I have taken all this time to prepare for it. And that usually results in a really nice, meaningful connection that I make with the person I'm talking to. And by the end of the conversation, I have this... I'll just admit it, like, misguided perception that we've just become friends because we've had a really non-casual conversation about stuff that's that's really, really important to this person, which is the kind of thing you do when you're making a new friend. Um, and you don't interview people to become friends with them because you're just likely to be disappointed. You know what I mean? People already have their own friends, and it's not like that I really think all of a sudden we're going to hang out, me and this other person. But because the nature of our first connection is so intimate in this way, at least on one side of it, it tricks your brain over into the swimming pool of neurons 
that I think lights up when you make a real-life connection with somebody who you do end up becoming friends with. Um, and then a friendship doesn't necessarily develop from a podcast interview. And so you experience, I experience, I'll just speak for myself, a sense that you've like lost a friend that you worked really hard to get, even though they were never really your friend in the first place. So it's really surreal. <laughs> it's very surreal to lose a friend that you never had. And I'm with you, David. And I don't know if there's others out there who do work like this, who resonate with that experience, but it's just very strange. I also wanted to say that, of course, there are elements to the experience that I talked about in the Friday show last week that I just wasn't considering because I was just talking about my own experience. And I had this unbelievable opportunity this week that... um really helped me put a lot of this in perspective, which is that a few weeks ago on The Midnight Disease, we had the wonderful musician Aaron McKeown on, and I told you in the intro to that episode that uh, one of the things Aaron does is they make their own podcast, which is called Aaron McKeown's Facts of Life. And Aaron reached out to me after our episode came out and asked if I would like to go on the Facts of Life, and I was extremely moved by that because as i told you aaron's music has lived in my chest for years almost 20 years at this point so one of the things aaron said in the conversation that we had on the facts of life was that when they heard the intro that i did of them for the midnight disease in the intro i talked a lot about my perception of their songs and how they are this combination of the strange and the familiar, how there's this kineticness to it in the percussion, but this smoothness in the vocals. You guys remember what I said. And what Aaron told me in the course of this conversation for the Facts of Life is that they just don't often have the experience of somebody else describing their work in a definitive way and that it was i mean thankfully they really appreciated what i said about their music but that it was a very odd surreal experience on aaron's side to hear themselves reflected back to themselves and that there was an initial sort of jarringness to that and it made me think in the context of what we've been talking about on this episode that I got to remember that, <laughs> that when you send a piece that you have made that uses somebody else's words to create a portrait of that person, you might be showing them a portrait of themselves that they don't recognize. That's not even to say they don't like it. They just don't recognize it because it's not how they see themselves. And so you're going, you're basically holding up a picture to them that says like, hey, this is you. I, I drew you. And their reaction might be, I don't recognize me in that. That isn't me. And that might make them uncomfortable, uh, confused. Who knows? 
But it could certainly be an explanation for why they might not reply right away or ever. And I'm going to try to keep that in mind. Now, there is another thing that David's email made me think about, and it's a little tricky to express, so I'm just going to see what I can do. But it's that there is a sense when you make podcasts. I'll just stick with podcasts because that's the thing I know the most about making. There is a sense of precarity to it, and it's inherent in the medium. It's, it's also what we love about radio and podcasting is that it doesn't really exist, right? You can't hold a radio show in your hand. You can't hold a podcast in your hand. It's just sound waves that move through the air and they come into your awareness and sometimes the way that the content of those sound waves rhymes with your life, it can stop you dead in your tracks and give you revelations or profound emotional moments that just couldn't have happened any other way. I will give you an example. A few years ago, I was in a relationship that both of us knew was going nowhere that we were both holding on to for dear life, even though there was no way to resuscitate it. And there was this one particular day where I was going to go pick up my girlfriend at the time in the car and bring her uh, actually here to the studio. Um, and as I was driving up to the apartment where I was going to pick her up outside, I was listening to the This American Life episode that I'm sure many of you have also heard where the comedian Kurt Brauneler talks about um, being in a relationship where he and his partner were about to get married and they decided before they were going to get married, they were going to go on a room springer, which meant that they could date slash sleep with other people for a little while just to make sure that um, they really wanted to stay with each other. And of course, what they learn from this room springer is that... Um, they don't actually want to be together anymore, and their relationship ends. And as I was driving up to the apartment, I just remember having this thought, she's going to get in the car and tell me that it's over. Because we're doing the same thing as the characters in this story. And that's exactly what happened. And it's it, like she got in the car and I could tell that she was upset, and she looked at me, and I knew what she was going to say before she'd even said it. And I was devastated, of course, but I also was shielded from some of that devastation because I knew that I wasn't alone. I knew because I had just had this company of other people who I knew had gone through the same thing. And I just had this instant innate sense that as terrible as it felt in that moment for her to tell me that she had realized it was time for this relationship to end, 
I knew there was a model out there somewhere for people who had not only gotten through it, but come to the other side of it enough that they could tell the story of it with the hindsight and wisdom of what they learned from it on the radio. Now, I could send somebody a link to that episode of This American Life, but I can't send, I can't send you that moment. I can't send you the comfort of that revelation. It just happened, and it's gone. I can't recreate that feeling. I can just, I can remember that I had it. I can have gratitude for the fact that it existed for that strange moment of my life that it existed for. And the precarity of that, the, the awareness that whenever you turn on the radio or turn on a podcast, you might be setting yourself up for a moment like that. That's why we love radio and podcasts. It's one of the many reasons. And when you work in radio and podcasting, if you're anything like me, you're doing it in part because of the promise that you might be able to create a moment like that. Every time you talk into the microphone, every time you manipulate a sound wave in your editing software, every time you do deep research on a guest that's going to come on a show, you know that you are playing with very powerful energy. And you also know that there's no way to predict when something that you make is going to connect that way. There's no way to target that kind of experience towards any particular person because you have no idea who's going to listen. And so for me, the byproduct of that is that I get very fixated on process because you can't make a radio show or a podcast tangible, but the elements of the process in making it are tangible. You can write notes in your notebook as you're researching somebody. You can get obsessed with microphones, which are the physical objects that capture the sound waves that create the moments. You can sit in the radio studio and just take in the sense of church-like quiet that those soundproof rooms have and think about how that stillness has the potential to be filled with sounds that change people's emotional chemistry and just have a reverence for the fire that you're playing with. And so I was thinking about all this, and it made me think of a story that I wanted to tell you guys um, to close things out on this Friday afternoon in the universe. And the story is about the first week, I think, that I worked at the WNYC radio show on the media. And at this time in my life, I had wanted to get a job in radio so badly because I wanted to be a part of making the radio that made my life so wonderful. And On the Media was definitely one of those shows. And 
So after years and years and years of trying and podcasting independently and freelancing, I had gotten the opportunity to work there as a per diem. And I had been given the responsibility of editing this uh, three-way conversation about gun violence and between the host of the show and two reporters. And it was a tricky bit of business because our host was in had been recorded her end of the conversation in the studio at WNYC and the two reporters had recorded their ends of the conversation in studios in their respective remote locations. So I had to line up all the audio. There was different amounts of room tone in all three of the signals and the conversation had been, I think, an hour long and I had to get it down to seven minutes and I had to make it feel like both of the reporters that we spoke to were making meaningful contributions and deal with all the sonic issues. And it was my first week at on the media and I wanted to make a really good impression. So that's a lot. And I remember sitting at the radio station and I had probably been working on, it was the, the interview had ended at like 430 it was about 6.30, so I had been working on this edit for two hours. And I was very, very far from the finish line. I was maybe a third of the way through it. And that night, I was supposed to go and do a rehearsal for a sketch comedy show that I was in. At this time in my life, I had sort of told myself that I was somehow going to ascend to the heights that I wanted to ascend to by doing everything that I was interested in all the time, all at once. So sketch comedy, writing, podcasting, music, I was just going to do it all. And somehow I would uh, roll through these experiences uh, like the hero of the video game Katamari Damacy who has this giant ball that just rolls through landscapes and things stick to it and at the end the ball's really big and the, the little, you win. <laughs> I thought that's how I was going to make my way in the arts. And I remember sitting at my desk that night so early in this edit and realizing if I stay here tonight for as long as it takes to complete this edit to the very best of my ability. And I send it in so that when the host comes in tomorrow, they find it and the thought they have is, Sam did a great job on this edit, let's give him another, another one. That is what is necessary to be able to keep coming to this radio station and working every day. That's what it's going to take. And if instead... I stop working right now. I send an email saying, need a couple more hours tomorrow to finish up the edit, had to head out for the night, but um, we'll have it to you as soon as possible tomorrow. And I go to this sketch comedy rehearsal, which, by the way, I'm not prepared for because I've spent the whole day at the radio station working on this edit and interview. Um, I'm going to have a bad time at the sketch comedy rehearsal because I'm not prepared. I'm not going to do that to the best of my ability. I am going to come in tomorrow knowing that I have slowed progress on this week's episode because I didn't put in the time to finish it. 
they are going to feel like I'm somebody who works slowly and needs more time to finish things, and that's going to be in their head every time an, an assignment comes along. This is a moment of reckoning. I have to pick one of these things. And I emailed the folks I was working on the sketch comedy show with, and I said, um, I don't think I can be a part of this show, and I'm really sorry. And I knew in sending that email that I was making a decision to approach my life differently than I had in every moment leading up to that point. I was stepping into my post-Katamari life. And I stayed at the radio station that night until 10.30. I think I remember that the lights went out <laughs> and my computer monitor was still on. And then the next morning I walked in at 8.30 and I sat there at my desk fussing with my coffee and um, trying to look busy and like I was not anxiously awaiting the door to the host's office opening and her stepping out to announce her feelings about the edit that I had sent in. And around 10, she opened the door and she stepped out and uh, she whispered something to the senior producer whose desk was right outside her door. And then she looked over at me and she was like, Sam, good edit. And then she walked into the studio to go record something for the show that week. And it was such an important moment in my life to realize her saying, Sam, good at it. Just to get to that, not Sam, incredible job. Oh my God, this is the best edit anybody's ever sent in. Sam, good at it is good job, professional producer of a radio show. You've done exactly what you needed to do. You can stay. That was the subtext in my mind was, good job, you can stay. and you, You've lived to, to produce another day. And the realization in that moment of the level of effort that it takes to get to good job, you can stay, which is, if you add it all up, you know, with the interview prep and then the edit, probably 12 hours that I spent on this thing, just to get to seven minutes of the show, and her saying, good job, you can stay. A new tier was revealed of what it takes. And I started this whole section of the show out by talking about precarity. And the reason that uh, this anecdote to me is, is related to precarity is that some months after that wonderful moment... I was asked to fact-check a script for an, another episode of the show. And it was the really horrible incident in which uh, Sandra Bland was killed. And we had added uh, this story to our episode for the week um, kind of at the last minute. As the story broke, I think, on a Thursday, and our show came out on Fridays. So we didn't have very much time to put this together. We were relying on the initial reporting that had come in from other outlets to craft our story. Um, whoever it was that had written the this section of the script for the episode that week 
um, had, based on what they were seeing in that moment, um, said Sandra Bland was a student at, and I don't even remember what university it was, but a university, uh, a student at this university, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so part of my job as the fact checker for that section was to make sure that all the facts were correct, uh, which the way we did it meant that um, anytime there was a factual statement made in a script, you had to find three sources that confirmed that fact. And I did that for this university attribution, and I turned in the script. I said, I have fact-checked this part. It is sound. And I went home for the night. And when I came in the next morning, the senior producer and the host took me aside, and they said, Sam, we're very upset with you. And I was horrified. I was like, what, what, what did I do? And I guess they had figured out uh, late the previous night when they were doing the final recording of the episode that it had been confirmed uh, that Sandra Bland went to a different university than what had been written in the script, and I hadn't caught it in my fact check. And so at the last minute, they had to change it. And so the episode had very nearly gone out with a an incorrect fact in a story that was obviously very loaded and really important and where I mean not that any no story should have factual errors in it but this one it felt particularly important to get it right and they were like you got to do better you got to do better and it was the inverse of the nice edit feeling it was the way I heard it was like, we're not sure we want you to come back on Monday. That's not what they said, <laughs> but that's how I heard it. And so I went home that weekend and I thought, you've got to go in there on Monday morning with the best story pitches that they have ever heard in their entire lives. A lot of times we would have these pitch meetings on Mondays and most of the producers would come in with two, maybe three ideas for a story. And I thought, you're going to come in with 15. You're going to have a list of 15 stories that would work really, really well. You're going to spend the entire weekend researching these stories. You are going to have an angle. You are going to have sources. You're going to have already done pre-interviews with these people. And they're going to see that you are taking accountability for this grave error that you have made, and you're going to win them back. So I come in that next Monday. I've got my 15 stories. I've done two or three pre-interviews over the weekend, and I haven't slept very much because of how much time I have spent assembling this list of 15 stories, and I am wired, and I'm over-caffeinated, and I'm talking over other people in the pitch meeting, and I'm not making any rational sense as I'm describing the stories because I'm trying to say everything all at once that I think is interesting about the story. And they don't take any of my pitches, <laughs> which they shouldn't, because I was just a garbled Katamari ball of nonsense. And so I go back to my desk after the pitch meeting and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, fuck, I don't have a job on the show this week. The thing about the pitch meeting is... You would If you came out of the pitch meeting with an assignment, you knew you were going to play a meaningful role in the show for that week. And if you didn't have an assignment, it was like you were on the bubble, like you were not 
necessary in a core way. And that was a dangerous position to be in, it felt to me. So I'm sitting at my desk and I'm thinking, how do I get these people back? How do I win these people back? What do I do? What do I do? And one of the other producers I he overhear idly says like, oh, um, who wants to do the lunch order today? And in a flash, I think that's what you've got to do. Spin around in your chair right now and in a really fun, bubbly way, offer to be the lunch order guy and take everybody's lunch order. And then everybody will see that you care about the team and its cohesiveness and happiness and health. And that's what you got to do. Do it right now. Turn around in your chair. Go, go, go. Do it. And I spin to the right in my office chair and I tear my meniscus <laughs> of my right knee. I feel it happen instantly. In the moment, I don't know that it's my meniscus, but I do know that as I spin around, there's a popping sound in my knee and all of a sudden I can't bend my leg. And I... Instead of saying, I'll do the lunch order, I go, I'll do... And everybody's staring at me like, what is wrong with you? Like, what just happened? Because all they've seen is that the producer who 30 minutes ago in the pitch meeting couldn't express words in a linear way has now just spun around in his chair and moaned in the middle of the office. And I say, I can't bend my leg. And, you know, they end up having to wheel me out onto the street in my desk chair and put me in an Uber. And I don't have health insurance, so I go to an urgent care. And they do an x-ray, and it turns out my meniscus is torn. I end up having to have surgery. It's like a whole thing. And it happened because... I felt that my ability to keep making radio was about to slip away. The precarity, the precarity of it made me so desperate. And that was 10 years ago, maybe more. And if I'm being honest, I still feel that precarity. I am convinced that I'm, I'm one missed university attribution away from being wheeled out into the street and left there on the outside, on the outside of the story. And I think if I've learned anything from this experience and many others like it, uh, is that if you can just come back to the stillness of the studio and the parts of the process that you can hold. You can hold your preparation in your notebook. You can sit with another human, whether in real life or virtually, and have a conversation and be present in that conversation. And you just do everything that you can to avoid making a mistake and know that sometimes the best you can hope for is nice edit. It takes everything you have, and sometimes you don't get anything concrete in return. 
And so you have to return. You have to come back into the studio and sit in the stillness and trust in the potential of what can happen when sound waves move through the air. I think that's everything for this Friday afternoon in the universe on the Midnight Disease. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. And if any of this was meaningful to you, uh, or if you feel like it was gobbledygook, <laughs> either way, let me know. Midnight at WALT.FM. A reminder that I have started um, writing these sorts of stories and reflections on Substack. You can find that at samdingman.substack.com. Earlier this week, I wrote about some of the things that my conversation with Alex Goldman on the Wednesday episode of The Midnight Disease brought up for me. Um, and I'd love to share with you there, as I am grateful to get to do with you here in the podcast feed. I will talk to you on Wednesday of next week on the next Wednesday show of The Midnight Disease. And until then... Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. Keep driving. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.